The point is not to become a generic good person or a generic spiritual person. The point by my lights is to find the integrity that you can express in your context with your predilections. And that does look different than a simple like you do you. But I guess I mean our wisdom, our particular version of connection with the good, the true and the beautiful will be will be distinct. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm talking to Maria Bowler about the Enneagram. And as I tell Maria in the beginning of our conversation, I've been wanting to do an episode about the Enneagram for a while, but just wasn't sure who to talk to about it. And then I happened to start following Maria on Instagram, and I was just really struck by the way that she's able to bring what feels like a really thoughtful, nuanced, fresh, but very deep take on the Enneagram when I feel like I'm seeing it more and more all over the place on podcasts like this one, you know, on Instagram and memes and things like that. And if you've never heard of the Enneagram before, don't worry, Maria is going to explain what it is and the significance of the symbol that is central to the Enneagram. But I'll just say quickly for some grounding context that the Enneagram has very mysterious and spiritual roots and has really come to be used as a personality typology system that bridges spirituality and psychology and helps people to understand more about our fears and motivations and our gifts and things that we struggle with and why that might be so that we can become more ourselves and bring our gifts to the world and relate to other people more genuinely and deeply and effectively. So you'll hear Maria give a much more knowledgeable and eloquent description in our conversation. Maria is a contemplative artist, spiritual director, and Enneagram guide who uses creative tools and ancient wisdom practices to lead contemplatives, makers, and other necessary idealists down paths of sacred self-discovery so they can tune out the noise and notice the goodness, truth, and beauty that wants life in them. I was really excited to ask Maria some of my very specific questions, not just about the Enneagram, but about contemplation and spiritual life and growth in general. So we start with some grounding in the context of what is the Enneagram, what's going on with the nine different types in the Enneagram, and then I get to ask Maria questions that have been on my mind and on my heart for years now about what it means to be trying to discover or uncover or build and create your identity and who you are as a person while at the same time being interested in spiritual paths that instruct you to surrender and let go of disordered attachments and cleaning and ideas about yourself and other people in the world. So we got into some deep philosophical talk that is the reason I wanted to do the show Perennials in the first place. This is exactly the kind of conversation I had in mind when I started the show. So I loved it. I really hope you do too. I think you will. And you should definitely check out Maria on Instagram, Maria E.V. Bowler, or at her website, mariabowler.com. And as always, please feel free to reach out. You can email me at perennialspodcast at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at perennialspodcast. I love hearing your wisdom and thoughts and questions 
and getting to ask you questions about what you think about, in this case, maybe it's the Enneagram, maybe it's questions you're asking around your own identity or your Enneagram type. I would love to dig into some of that with you if you want to chat about it. Okay, I hope you enjoy the episode. Take care. Maria, welcome to Perennials. Hello, thank you for having me. I have been wanting to do an episode about the Enneagram for a while now, actually. And I've sometimes I kind of search for guests for particular topics, but recently, like in the past year, I have I have kind of felt like, you know what? I think the right person, I'll just stumble upon them at some point. And that's really worked out for me recently. So <laughs> I stumbled upon you on Instagram and I was so excited just because the way that you write about the Enneagram is really compelling to me, really thoughtful. And you have a way of, yeah, bringing like a depth and a a simplicity in the sense that Mm -hmm. you make it something that we can understand, (laughs) (laughs) but without losing any of that depth and nuance. So, so excited to talk to you. Thank you. That's um, especially heartening because it is Instagram is a strange medium to be talking about complicated and really personal things, but it can also really connect people who, you know, in different places. And so it's been really cool to see, uh, to be able to join a conversation like this over, over that medium. Thanks for having me. Speaking of taking a huge topic and trying to, (laughs) (laughs) trying to boil it down, I guess, um, without reducing it. Mm -hmm. For people who have not heard of the Enneagram or what I think is becoming increasingly common, especially over the past few years, is people have heard of it, but they're not really sure what it is, or Mm -hmm. they've just maybe read a couple of Instagram posts about it or something. Could you give a little bit of context and maybe a brief introduction of the Enneagram? Yeah. So an interesting thing about even just the word Enneagram is that often we, when we refer to the Enneagram, um, we're talking about what is now understood as the Enneagram of personality, which is, you know, sometimes we'll run across it like it's a personality typing system. Um, but the word itself it refers to the, the shape. So um, the Greek words Ennea nine, and gramos or a written or drawn symbol. And the symbol itself is, is the, the real <laughs> the Enneagram, you're really referring to the symbol. And it's connected to different spiritual and oral traditions as well as sacred geometry. So uh, the background to it is, is fuzzy. So um, it's certainly understandable that people are a little puzzled. Some authors claim that the symbol has strong Sufi roots and others point to early esoteric uh, Jewish roots or early uh, esoteric Christian roots, depending on uh, the author you're drawing from. But uh, we can say that in its modern form, it is a psycho-spiritual map. (laughs) In the 20th century, there have been a lot of competing claims and even lawsuits around who has claimed to what um, set of innovation. So that's partly why it can be a little complicated to sort of uh, trace the history. But we can point to the Enneagram of personality as a 20th century invention or uh, development, I should say. 
it's different from personality typing systems like the Myers-Briggs because it isn't really about behavior and isn't even purely psychological. It's not about um, what we can see people do. It's about motivations. It, it tries to point to uh, underlying structures. So, cause we can all do the same behavior for very different reasons, which is, which is interesting. I, you know, I might wear a hat because I think it makes me look cool and you might wear a hat because it's cold outside. So the idea is that there are nine different points on this symbol that describe ways of seeing the world. And when we uh, use it at, to its best effect, we grow within our place on the Enneagram and become more free and less constricted, less stuck in our patterns. We can see our patterns a little more clearly and develop a relationship with it that's less sort of compulsive and limited. So that was long. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was, I was going to say that was so beautiful and concise. I was telling you before we started recording that I recently have been reading a book about the Enneagram by Richard Rohr and mm -hmm. Andreas Ebert. Um, and it's called the Enneagram, a Christian perspective. And, and I, I like that you, you talked about it as a map because in Rohr's book, he wrote that it is a map and that, and he says, mm. studying a map never replaces the experience of the country itself. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that line really stuck with me in terms of, I'm definitely someone who, who gets stuck in my head a lot. And I, I would love, I will just sit there mm. and read about the Enneagram all day, but mm -hmm. maybe not apply it so much. Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges in using it well, and, and maybe we'll get more into that later, but you know, and I'm not, I don't want to sit here and, and sort of harangue people about how to use the Enneagram. I think there's enough people who can do that. Uh, but it it's like any kind of um, knowledge, particularly any kind of knowledge that's designed to help you grow in wisdom is that, you know, knowing a theory isn't enough. And so having a community and having a practice and, and not necessarily an Enneagram practice, but a practice of observation of some kind or you know, meditation or prayer or some relationship with nature that, that helps you become less identified with some of the, the habits that we have that gives you a little bit of distance will help in integrating it and moving it from theory to practice, which is one of the cool things that the Enneagram actually describes is how we know things in different ways. How there's a head center of intelligence and a gut center of intelligence and a heart center of intelligence. So, you know, if we can incorporate that into how we relate to the Enneagram, that's sort of a great way to, to have it become more than just another fact about yourself you can list. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about the nine different types and just some of mm -hmm. the characteristics that we might find in those types? Yeah. So because there's so much information on the Enneagram types and their descriptions, um, I will point people toward you know, the Enneagraminstitute.com is a good place to start. And I will I will touch on the types as a set of questions, which is a little bit different maybe than, than how it's been, uh, you may have encountered it before. And the reason I'll do that is just to put a different perspective on the types instead of a set of qualities. And also because maybe if we are hearing the question that 
uh, each point on the Enneagram is trying to ask, we might um, have a little more um, compassion and we might see why that type would be important and needed. So type one. So at point one, um, people are asking, what is the good I can bring about here? They might look into a room and try to find something, <laughs> try to make more good there. Uh, type two uh, might ask, how can I generate more love? Type three might ask, what is the most valuable thing I can do here? How can this be at its best right now? This being, you know, anything. We want to maximize and, and optimize the, uh, the situation, which can be really important. Type four is asking, what is the significance and what is the most authentic thing? Type five is asking what is true and how can I make the pieces fit together? Type six, how do I find guidance and how are we gonna make it through together? Type seven might ask, where can I find freedom and potential? How can we find satisfaction? Type eight, what is the fullest, most vital expression of life and how can I make sure it's protected? So eights tend to have this, they want energy to be at its biggest and most complete. And type nine, how can we stay connected to each other and our environment, whether that's a social environment or our natural environment? And we might notice that if we see it in terms of a question that's being asked, um, <laughs> a lot of what comes out of it is a lot of what we, the behavior that comes out of it is going to be attempts to answer that question. And, and we might notice that, you know, we might be talking about the same thing, but we're coming at it from two totally different uh, sets of concerns, which is really interesting. Marina, this is so awesome. <laughs> I love the oh, question format. <laughs> I really love the question format. I am really curious, in addition to how people can learn more to try to identify their type, do you believe that everyone has one type or do you believe that that can change over time or in different scenarios? I'm just really curious about your view on the type itself and identifying yeah. your type. Like, do you see it as there's one and that's your type your whole life? <laughs> um, can yeah. it change? Do people, can people be split? What's, what's your take mm -hmm. on that? I do believe we have one type and that's it. Um, as for it changing, I think there's an open question around at what age it really solidifies. I've heard different teachers say different things. Uh, and it's one reason why I think typing kids is to be avoided. It's not that you can't see qualities in children that may suggest a certain direction, but um, I know people who feel that their type as a child or that they do not exemplify the stereotypes of their type um, when they were small. But by the time they've reached adulthood, they are, they are in it. I'll also say that it's not limiting to simply be one type because each type is so dynamic. And there, there are ways that the Enneagram describes uh, relating to other types in these lines of development. And we have 
we have wings, we have, there's, there's a lot of movement within our type. How would you suggest that people go about determining their type? Yeah, I guess it's sort of a good news, bad news situation. Um, the bad news is <laughs> there's no one foolproof way, but that's also the good news because you have, can have multiple points of entry. Um, uh, yeah. And I think that there are questions to ask once you get into having a couple options that you're deciding between. So I think that is a, a useful way to start. So generally in a more practical level, if someone's asking me, where do I start? I say, you know, read, read the type descriptions in, um, you know, and I'll, point to the Enneagram Institute website as a place to start, or I'll suggest um, the Wisdom of the Enneagram book or, um, you know, a number of other books to just cross some types off the list. And then from there, uh, once you have a couple candidates, there are some questions to ask around um, noticing what's going on. So, you know, maybe you're deciding between a type in that's a heart type. And uh, versus a head type. And so learning a little bit more about, uh, what that means. So that would, that would be, that would open up a new set of questions for you. Like, okay, like, what is it like to be a heart type in this particular type? Another thing to look at is, um, because I've mentioned those lines in the Enneagram. So each type is connected to other types through what's called these lines of development or arrows of development. And that's part of the, the symbol it's describing those sort of lines across the circle. And so you can look at those lines and say, oh, you know, maybe you're trying to decide between a point two and a point nine. And so you can ask yourself like, okay, point two connects to, has direct lines to four and eight. Um, do I draw from qualities of four and eight in uh, in situations where I feel uh, very secure or really heightened? Or as a nine, am I rather drawing from strategies at three and six because nine has um, aligned to three and six? So that's another way to narrow it down, kind of looking at the at the dynamics. And so <laughs> it's, it's bad news in that, like, yeah, that requires some more time, but it's also good news because it lets you really understand the whole picture better and um, have a have a deeper relationship to the Enneagram as a whole as you discover more about yourself. I'll touch on the three centers of intelligence because I think they're really useful for anyone regardless of whether you're looking at your Enneagram type. It, it's just a, a really interesting tool to, to consider uh, how am I engaging with this problem if you have a problem. So um, let's consider that uh, there are three forms of relating to the world that we have uh, in us, three sort of um, centers of uh, discerning something. So we're very familiar with the head center. Our culture is uh, really prioritizes and values the head center and what what the head center does is um, make distinctions between things. It says, this is not that. It uh, likes categories and it likes to work through things in a, in a linear fashion. In its highest expression, it is 
clear guidance. It's, you know, that feeling when you have just a clear idea of this is the direction I'm going, this is the thing. That is the head center uh, doing its thing that we all need it to do. Uh, the heart center is going to parse through things based on uh, a relational question. So how does this affect my relationships? How does this affect my relationship with myself? Um, it likes to, it can draw on memories of the past. Um, it can ask questions of, you know, identity and uh, I was going to say worth, but that's maybe not the most precise. So the heart center, it says like, does this, <laughs> does this feel right? Not on a gut level, but um, do I feel um, belonging here? Do I feel um, warmth and affinity with this issue or with this place, this thing that I'm trying to discern? That's the heart center doing its thing. And uh, the gut center is something that I think we're not great at working with in our, in our culture, but it's so important. It is the knowledge that comes about in emotion. It's instinctive. It uh, is not particularly verbal, um, but it's the kind of thing that when you just know, um, let's say you're, you're walking in the woods and you don't know how you sense another, you know, an animal in the woods around you, but because it's not that you heard it necessarily, but you just feel it, you know, that's your gut center. It often comes about when you're in motion. Um, it has a sense of, of um, boundaries and, and power. And it can also, we, <laughs> um, anger is something that comes up in the gut center too. And um, that can be a really important emotion. So those three centers of intelligence um, can be helpful to refer to when you're looking at uh, a situation that you're sort of parsed through. Like, oh, am I am I overusing, <laughs> you know, uh, thinking and feeling, which would be, you know, maybe my tendency, and repressing my um, my gut knowing. Those kinds of things can be interesting to refer to. Yeah. So just to see if I've kind of kind of got it. Um, <laughs> different numbers kind of fall into mm -hmm. being centered or kind of being dominant in one of those, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think that even if, even if you don't know your number, you can come at it through looking at the centers of intelligence mm -hmm. thing, like, which am I, you know? Right. Um, yeah. It's so fascinating. All the different, like you said, the relationships between the different types and the head and the heart and the gut centers. And you could go so deep forever yes. right, on all of these yeah. things. Um, it's so funny because you asked me before about my type. Like if I, if mm -hmm. I have identified one for myself and I was going to be like, what's the type that <laughs> can't decide what their type is? Cause I would be that one. <laughs> Oh yeah. There actually are a couple of candidates. I can that. imagine that can narrow it down a little bit. Right. Like the person it, who's like, no, I don't know. Uh, yep. um, <laughs> I, I, like I said to you, I feel, I feel pretty split, uh, pretty torn between four mm -hmm. and six. I'm leaning more six, but mm -hmm. I feel like I have, a, I have a four in me too. I don't know. It's hard. Well, I'll, 
<laughs> okay, so I'll just add another layer to mm-hmm. this, um, which is a is a thing to think about. I mentioned the centers of intelligence, you know, head, heart, and gut. There are groupings within the Enneagram, and that's there are several different ways of of breaking the Enneagram down into to different groups. And one of them is by looking at how the centers of intelligence are being used. And each type has a center that they prefer, and that's that's the group that they're in, and then a center that they have uh, repressed in some way. And for some types, that center is the same. So it, it's, it's almost like uh, they are really overusing that center of intelligence, but they're not, they can get a little bit, uh, their relationship to it is not the most productive, but they're using it a lot. You know, the six is a head type and the four is a heart type. And, you know, the questions around heart types is about identity and heart types can, can deal with shame in a, in a really direct way. Whereas um, a head type, they are focused on uh, they, they may be uh, circling around issues of fear. And a six um, uses the, the head center, but also represses their mind. And so they're in their mind, but then they might uh, not want to close the loop and then you know, settle on a particular idea. So it's sort of, that, that's why it's not the most productive, but they're using it. And I, I also don't want to frame that in a purely negative way, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but for our purposes in this conversation, that's what I'll um, sort of leave it as. So it's it's like thinking about which center of intelligence are you using, uh, are you leading with sort of relational issues and identity issues, and and maybe some shame is coming up there, or are you leading with your mind and trying to um, parse things through distinctions, and then um, maybe getting caught in a bit of a loop. Mm. Yeah, that that checks out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean, so fascinating because like, of course, we all have heads and hearts and guts. So like we all Mm -hmm. use them to varying degrees. And even with the types themselves, like, of course, we have a little bit of all the types in us, right? It's just the question Mm -hmm. of kind of what do you lead with and what and what kind of drives your your main motivations and fears, right? Yeah. And I think it's really important that you say that we have all the the types in us because we are not, (laughs) uh, we need um, each of the perspectives on reality that each of the types kind of uh, lean toward. Mm. And so, uh, you know, we're not these, you know, just atoms floating along as it's described in the Enneagram, it's the opposite. You, the The symbol looks like a very interconnected um, picture of the world, and I think it's important to see the the types as descriptive of a of a necessary set of of ways of being. Mm. That can also be limiting, of course, if we're we're stuck. But is a is a real uh, significant contribution. Mm. Something else that Richard Rohr wrote in his book about the Enneagram that I'd be so curious just to get your thoughts on in terms of finding your number. He Hmm. says that if you don't sense the whole thing as somehow humiliating, you haven't found your number. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he kind of introduces the Enneagram as like kind of leading with the negative, like, yeah, this is the stumbling yeah. block to you really being able to see different perspectives of reality or to see how you get in your mm-hmm. own way or to see how you disconnect yourself from yourself, mm-hmm. from others, from God or uh, something mm-hmm. greater than all of us. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious about just your thoughts on that idea of like, if, <laughs> if you're, if you don't feel a little bit humiliated, maybe you haven't found your type. <laughs> There's definitely some truth to that. I think because of the depth in the descriptions of each type, it really can feel like someone's reading your email and that can really be very humbling. So I think that that's very true. And some, you know, I have heard stories of people who uh, have identified with a certain type for a really long time and it felt really good. And that's because it wasn't their type. (laughs) It was a, it was maybe the adjacent type. And then they realized, oh, um, that's why I, (laughs) I felt so, um, like it was really easy for me to be the best version of this type because it wasn't me. Yeah, uh, that that said, um, I don't see type as simply an obstacle, and I and I don't know that Roar would, you know, if if we pressed him on this, would would agree with that either. I think there is a way sometimes that the enneagram can be taught <laughs> in these extremes where it's either like the party trick, or it's it's all pathology. It's all getting in the way of spiritual growth. And, um, you know, our, our distinct shape of seeing things, our, our little perspective that we have on the world is necessarily limited and it can, it can be stopping us from engaging with reality and stop us from engaging with other people and with God or the universe, but we're to develop a relationship with our distinct quirks and and not simply try to exercise them and become some, you know, boundaryless sort of um, completely indistinct person. So our, I think our, that's how I would see the type. It's like this, it's a doorway um, and we all need our particular way in to reality. And that will have to, that will necessarily be a limitation, but it's, it's, um, it's going to be both a help and a hindrance. Yeah. And, and I should say that, that Roar does, he talks about that as kind of a starting point, a humbling starting Mm -hmm. point that then when you work with it can lead to finding what's truly good about you, not the thing that Mm -hmm. you're trying to prop up. Mm -hmm. Um, he uses like false self and true self. Um, yeah. And so he does come to a place of finding of really sharing your gifts with the world, finding what your gifts really are and how you can share them and how you can kind of get out of your own way and connect with yourself and others. And so definitely brings it to, to a place of more wholeness and like you named freedom in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that (laughs) I don't think I disagree with Roar at all. And the only issue is that the language of false self and true self is um, very evocative and, you know, it has a, it has a a lineage, but then you end up having to kind of do that dance that, that you just mentioned where you're saying, yes, but, you know, 
um, you know, we can't live in a, a sense of our true self all the time. And, and of course, the thing we call our false self is not necessarily, you know, fake, like it's real and we, and we need it. And so there is this, you kind of are a little bit in the position of having to balance these two extremes in the end. Mm. And I wish that there was a third term mm. for where we're trying to go. And cause I think ultimately that's where most Enneagram teachers are, that's where they're pointing, mm. but we don't have a third term. <laughs> we have this, like this sort of, um, I mean, in the Enneagram community, they talk about ego and essence mm. and that's sort of another set of terms for the same thing. Um, yeah. in just a different, uh, slightly different school, but, um, that's, I think part of the reason it can be confusing when you get into these discussions, but, but we're, we're in the deep end, which is, which is great. I, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to be overwhelming. Um, but we're getting to really the, the deep spiritual issues that are going to be surfaced around conversations mm. around your true self and identity. And, and what does it mean to be limited human and connected to something larger? What is that? How is that to live in? You know, there's that kind of like beautiful tension there. And I love that we've stumbled into it mm-hmm. already. And that tension between I'm an individual with mm-hmm. all these different experiences and DNA and culture and history and environment and all of that. And wow, this the motivations and fears and stumbling blocks and gifts mm-hmm. that I'm reading about in this type, like, like you said, it feels like someone's reading my email. <laughs> that <laughs> tension is really interesting too. You know? Yeah. And like all the, dis- all the particularities, including your, your quirks, um, including the things that, that are limitations also open up or can open up if we work with them or and we have a, a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And at the point, I guess what I'm trying to, to make sure people hear, and I, I struggle with articulating this in my own work is that, you know, the point is not to become a generic good person or a generic spiritual person. The point by my lights is to find the integrity that you can express in your context with your predilections. And that does look different than simply, you know, than a simple, like you do you, like that, that, that is not uh, what we're saying, but, um, but I guess, I mean, our, our, our w- wisdom, our particular version of, of, of connection with the good, the true and the beautiful will be, will be distinct. I really love that. And it makes me think of, um, in Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love, mm. she talks about how when she goes to the ashram in India, she has this vision of herself as this silent, mm-hmm. like ethereal <laughs> person who is totally at peace and just and silent and smiling. And that's who she wants to be. And mm-hmm. then at some point, they the the people who run the ashram ask her to be like a guide for new visitors. And so they're like, we're so sorry, but instead of being silent, like, can you show people around? And it's just funny because she has this moment of like, 
she's this very friendly kind of outgoing person who likes to talk and loves people. And so she wanted to like shove herself into, this is what it looks like to be spiritual means being silent, being solitary. And instead it was like, no, can we use your gifts? Because you have such a gift for people and words and these things. So that just came into my mind as you were talking. I love what you're saying. It makes me think like I, you have your MFA in poetry and I work for a poetry mm. organization. It makes me think about how, <laughs> you know, really great poems are super mm-hmm. particular. It's like one of the first things you learn in a poetry workshop, right? Is like, don't <laughs> just say mm-hmm. these cliches that feel so universal. Talk about mm-hmm. the most specific details <laughs> of an experience Mm -hmm. and it will feel universal. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think, yes, um, that is the, to develop a relationship with the specific (laughs) and to be able to use our attention to see ourselves and, and the world around us, um, as closely and attentively as possible. And then with compassion, I think is where, is where the meat of that, <laughs> that is where it comes from. And the, and the Enneagram can be a really great set of descriptions for us to start engaging with. But as you were talking about before, you know, moving it beyond theory is, is how that's gonna happen. But theory is important because as we know, we have all these details and it's very rich. So it's always trying to incorporate um, as much of ourselves into our uh, ways of relating to, to the world as possible. So I'm curious for you, if, if you're okay talking about your type a little bit, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what it was like, what, what drew you to the Enneagram and what it was like for you kind of discovering, discovering your type. Mm-hmm. So sometime in the mid to late nineties, my mom uh, brought home a book on the Enneagram. I think I was 12 uh, and I latched onto it. So gosh, I've been immersed in it for almost 25 years now. And what drew me to it initially was that it helped me not take other people's actions so personally. <laughs> and I, I'm a four and I, uh, was slash am really sensitive. And I think I've joked that, you know, (laughs) poets can take the weather personally. And like, (laughs) that's kind of (laughs) where I was at. Just everything was was sort of run through this lens of, um, of my own feelings. And so it helped me sort of get some distance, which was, which was helpful for me initially. And then I went through a phase of seeing my foreness as, as embarrassing, and I mean, that's often part and parcel of being a four. We tend to find ourselves embarrassing generally sometimes at different times. Um, but, but I'll say some of that was because of this feeling of um, thinking that if I were to just like be aware of my habits, that could somehow like be enough. Oh, I, if I can catch myself in the act of being a four, then I can, I can stop <laughs> and I can be less of that. So, you know, I think we all go through that phase of when we start to notice like, oh my gosh, I am bringing the same thing to every dinner table. Like, yeah, every dinner table I go to, no matter where it is, I'm bringing the same dish. That's kind of that feeling of becoming aware of your type where you notice your own patterns. And it can be a little bit like, oof, wow. So that was a, there was a moment in time. And for, for my foreness that looked like, yeah, 
being sensitivity and seeing the world through the lens of my of my subjective feelings and to to know that that was not the only way I had to be was was really helpful so the the goal that with the Enneagram pointed me toward was that we could have a different relationship with our patterns and a real relationship instead of just unconsciously acting out my type something that stuck out to me when you were talking about you know find um your mom bringing home the Enneagram book when you were 12 is mm-hmm. also, and I'm sorry, I'm leaning so heavily on this Richard Rohr book. I have not done a lot of study on the Enneagram. So, oh no, totally. <laughs> um, it's, I, I obviously have a very limited scope, but another thing <laughs> that Rohr talks about is kind of at what age the Enneagram is mm. most helpful. And particularly because this show, this podcast is mm-hmm. about growing up. I, Mm -hmm. this is something I've struggled with in Roar's work in general, actually, from, from when I first found him in my mid twenties, because Mm -hmm. he kind of talks about like, well, when you're young, you got to build up your ego. The first half of Mm -hmm. life is really important. You got to build the ego up. So he even says in this book, like the Enneagram isn't really that meaningful to deal with, or it's not very meaningful to deal with the Enneagram in the early stage of life. Um, because you need to build your ego up and the Enneagram kind of helps you deconstruct it, deconstruct that identity that you've been so carefully crafting. But I at Mm. 24 was like, but Richard, I want to do this. Like I want to, I want to connect with what, you know, wisdom and, um, and spirituality. And I want to find my way. I feel so mixed up and I need guidance and I, and I don't, you know, I'm floundering mm-hmm. out here. So yeah, I would just mm-hmm. be really curious to hear your thoughts on, on yeah, age and how that plays in and, and kind of the constructing versus de- deconstructing your ego identity. Yeah. What a great question. I think about that a lot. <laughs> I think about a lot about the role of the ego in all of this spiritual exploration because um, I was raised in um, a church where we, I was encouraged to be as selfless as possible and in a family that, that pointed us in that direction. And that was great, except for, um, yeah, I didn't have a ton of positive uh, conceptions of how to feel, how to use my will in an effective way and how to own that I had a will and not immediately sort of bury it under other intentions and say, oh, this isn't something I want to do. It's the right thing to do. (laughs) You know, that kind of um, Mm -hmm. feeling. And and so I think what Roar is saying there is is sort of a corrective to that, but, you know, as you're pointing out, and it's, I think a sort of my story points to is that that's, that's often just not the order that we <laughs> do things in yeah. and that we're always doing, but we're always kind of wrestling with both. And yeah, maybe ideally, um, I don't even think that that's real. I don't think it's a real thing. I don't think there's any ideal order to life, but, um, uh, you know, I think on a super, maybe zoomed out level, uh, he's pointing to something that 
makes sense. But um, yeah, constructively and, and sort of as it has shown up in our life, you know, how do we um, engage with this when we're at a place where we're mm, we're both discovering who we are in a in our will and in our power. That's what I think of when I think of the will, our ability to say, I have an intention and I'm going to carry it out. Mm. While at the same time, time trying to be generous and wise and open and, um, you know, not willful in a destructive way. Both of those things are really important. And one of the reasons that I am so interested in talking about the creative process just as a uh, an overall theme is because I think that the creative process is a, a site where we see that dynamic at play between having an intention and trying to act it out while also needing to be open and uh, surrender and know that you don't control everything. But it's always that moving between that back and forth and that's where, where life happens. So I guess that that brings me back to, you know, what do, what do I think of um, this idea of being, of deconstructing the ego, you know, when you're, when you're young, um, I would point to that tension and say, um, making sure that you are curious about your will and your intentions and your sense of power and agency, while also curious about where you are um, allowing for limits to that power and you're receptive and um, if the word surrender resonates with you where there's where there's some surrender and then in the middle there's that there's that dance and I think that's a very creative dynamic. You spoke to, to that so beautifully and I I do wonder if there's something kind of gendered about it potentially mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. generational about it. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that similar to you, I, I, I remember as a kid thinking for various reasons that it was, it would be great to be selfless. And I was a middle <laughs> child in a big family. And I, rem- I remember watching a documentary about the beach boys with my dad and my brother mm-hmm. and hearing hearing them describe one of the members, I can't remember who now as being like the peacemaker of the band. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's <laughs> who I want to be. I want to be mm. the one who makes it okay for everybody, you know, and just keeps the peace. And, um, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful impulse, but at the same time, I think I I've always, as you said, maybe had some difficulty locating my will or knowing how to be in relationship with my will or my desire, knowing like where I start and end and someone else begins. And, Mm -hmm. and I feel like you, you touched on this earlier, the idea of kind of swinging between extremes. And I I think in my early twenties, I felt myself just kind of swinging between these two extremes of like, (laughs) Oh, like, I don't know. I feel like being raised and conditioned as a girl in Mm -hmm. the culture society, the time that I'm in, I don't even know like what I want or who I am just standing on my own. And I want to find that out, but also I don't want to just be alone. (laughs) Like I want to be in relationship and it's really confusing. 
space. So yes, no, it totally is. And where are the spaces where that is acknowledged and cultivated where people are going to ask you sincerely, what do you want? And also not then say, then go out and conquer. Yeah. <laughs> go, go be a boss, babe. Mm-hmm. Or something. Um, to to cultivate that sense of of um connecting to the the fire, the distinct spark that is that is you and um and also having a framework for humility within that I think that's a that's a thing where a lot of us are are missing especially if we were if we identified as sort of um you know a good kid if we tended Mm -hmm. toward kind of (laughs) that I think that especially comes up and you know I'm seeing that now in in myself and in um and in a lot of my friends who who are now in their 30s and and um or parsing through those those very questions and it's kind of beautiful um I'm I think it's just a a, a beautiful set of problems to have even to have the freedom to ask that and the freedom to start noticing both of those things is really great yeah it it was it's always interesting for me to you know, when I was 24 and I was like, no, Richard Rohr, I want to be in the second half of life. You know, it's like how much of that was me trying to get away from actually figuring out what I want and going for it, you know, just being like, "Mm, I'm just going to skip to transcendence. That sounds good. That sounds safer (laughs) and less painful. Um, so yes. Yeah. Well, I love that. Um, well, and the Enneagram can give language for some of the ways that types deny their own will and that they subvert it into, uh, you know, fate maybe, mm. or something that uh, their relationships require of them. And that's actually a really, a really interesting thing when you can start noticing um, that your thing that looks like the desire for transcendence or uh, good relationships is just where you know how to feel powerful. Mm. And so that's, that's where your will is kind of running laps. And that's not a, like the will is not a bad thing, but if you see that you've relegated it to that particular area, then you're pretty limited. And then you're going to be kind of frustrated because it, it doesn't really have a, a lot of freedom and you don't, you're not able to use it for in a generous way and in a, in a way that doesn't feel beset by circumstance. So for example, you know, a two um, is often surprised to hear that they don't only have that they <laughs> that they don't only have good intentions as far as their relationship is concerned. Well, they may have good intentions, but that it, that that intention also includes them feeling powerful and needed and connected. Mm. And so sometimes when they hear that for the first time, depending on you know how much sort of inner mm, inquiry they've done they may be a little horrified because they may have had a script for themselves where um, they are selfless. Now, I don't want to caricature, yeah, make twos into a caricature, but I've seen that happen um, in some people. Even a four, um, (laughs) it's really subtle, but, uh, you know, fours can feel only powerful when they have internalized their most difficult feelings and 
are kind of um, turning over their their difficulties inside them. That doesn't look like power to many people who aren't fours, but from the perspective of the four, that is where they feel in control because they are deciding what things mean in them and no one else is telling them what else anything means. Now, that's a, that is a, a kind of power, but it you can see how um, that is not gonna allow them to exercise their agency in other ways if that's the only place that they're allowing their, their, their will to be active. Yeah, I love that you named creativity earlier as mm. so important. And I've seen, like you've posted things on Instagram about creativity that are so interesting because I do just think mm-hmm. it's an arena where you can explore all of this. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, a safer container to yeah. explore how you want to play with or be in relationship with these different parts of yourself. Yes, yes. And isn't it interesting that so many people don't think of themselves as creative at all? Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me how that is an uncomfortable word for some, and including including me, you know, it feels sort of flighty maybe, or, you know, for kids or, or the realm of only a few people who are gifted mm-hmm. instead of something that we all, like a dynamic that we all participate in all the time. It's just so fascinating. Yeah. I know that you do spiritual direction Mm -hmm. and I actually had my spiritual director on the podcast, um, Mm. (laughs) a little bit ago, the end of 2019. So if people have listened, they might know a little bit about what spiritual direction is, (laughs) but I would love to hear a little bit about your work as a spiritual director and how you use the Enneagram with the people that you work with. So I see my role as a spiritual director to listen for the particular, to draw out the particular movement of the divine spark in someone's life. And that takes on a few different dimensions. That can be in one-on-one, a one-on-one context around a particular issue. I, I do spiritual direction around particular creative projects as well, because that's often a pretty existential space for people um, and in retreat contexts. But the idea is like the the movement of, of the spirit, however you want to understand it, is always active. And, and it's this intentional space to kind of draw that up. How is the spirit working in you? As for the Enneagram, um, you know, the application of <laughs> of wisdom is not one size fits all. So for example, for someone bringing more discipline into their rhythms uh, will be freeing. And for another person that might be just another thing for them to bludgeon themselves with. So the Enneagram is a great lens to see those patterns and to kind of have a way of, of understanding pretty quickly the patterns that are already at work. So you don't need the Enneagram to see how people might be relating to rhythms in their life, but it really helps see them faster. So I can, around discussing rhythms with people of their whether spiritual practice or creative practice or certain habits or routines to understand how that might show up and what that might mean as far as someone's motivations and why they might have a harder time 
with certain practices than others. Um, it's a it's a way to see inside. So yeah, way to get a quick insight. I I feel like your directees are very lucky <laughs> to get to work with you. <laughs> That's so kind. <laughs> Too kind. Thank you. I feel very lucky. I it's I just can't believe that that I get to talk about the most meaningful things in people's mm. lives with them. I I always feel really energized after those conversations. Mm. Thank you so much, Maria. This I could have talked to you for like three more hours, but um, that would yeah, be cruel. Same. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Ugh, what um what a delight. Thank you so much. Thank for you. And me. oh, really quick, if people want to find you online and find your work, where should they go? Yeah, I post um Enneagram and spiritual and creative resources at uh, Maria E.V. Bowler on Instagram. And um, mariabuller.com has some more, some more info. I'd be happy to, to chat with anyone about those things. Perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast or send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn. I pray to God.